Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. You are in for a real treat today as we talk to a Beeson grad who's recently published a book on the lives and the faith of his former parishioners, President George H.W. and Barbara Bush. What is it like to pastor a president? How do you prepare to preach a funeral that you know will be watched by millions of people all around the world? What was the Bushes' faith like? We'll explore these questions and more. But first, if you or someone you know is thinking about seminary, we would love to host you during our next preview day on February the 10th. This day is carefully designed for prospective students. They'll hear from faculty, students, and admissions staff. They'll spend some time with me, and all of us will do our best to answer questions and give our guests a glimpse of this beloved community we call Beeson. Learn more and register at BeesonDivinity.com slash Preview Day. All right, Kristen, who do we have on the show with us today? Thanks, Doug. We have the Reverend Dr. Russell Levinson. Uh, Dr. Levinson uh, lives in Houston, Texas with his wife, Laura, where he serves as the rector of St. Martin's Episcopal Church. He's been there since 2007. Uh, with nearly 10,000 members, St. Martin's is the largest Episcopal Church in North America. Uh, Levinson uh, co-officiated and offered a homily at the state funeral for President George H.W. Bush in Washington, D.C. and in Houston, and he officiated and preached at the funeral for First Lady Barbara Bush uh, in Houston. Uh, this is uh, the church of the president and Mrs. Bush, and so we look forward to talking uh, with our guest today about them. Uh, but I want to say first, before I go any further, that he's also a Beeson graduate, mm -hmm. and so we're proud to claim him as one of our own. So welcome uh, to the Beeson podcast. Great to be here, and I, I, I would certainly commend uh, the invitation to take advantage of preview day that you're offering here, because that's one of the ways I snuck in the door and had three wonderful years here uh, when I was gaining my D-men. Wonderful. Well, thank you. You heard it. So <laughs> <laughs> come to preview day, please. Well, we're delighted to have you with us on the podcast. Um, we have a lot to talk about, but before we do, we always like to begin uh, getting to know our uh, guest a little bit more personal, more than what I read at the beginning. So I wonder if you can tell us uh, about your roots. Where are you from and how did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, I grew up here in Birmingham uh, and um, uh, Went to high school here, ended up going to college at Birmingham Southern College out in the west part of Birmingham. Uh, but as a young man, grew up in the Episcopal Church. I um, uh, grew up at St. Luke's Episcopal Church, not too far from the Beeson and Sanford campus. Was baptized there and confirmed there. I think it's fair to say during those years, church attendance was really important to our family and to my parents. I made sure that we were in the door. Um, but I, I don't think I came to my faith came to fruition until my late teen years. I'm much older than the people sitting around the table here, but I grew up in the late 60s, early 70s, when what we at the time, I think history calls the Jesus Movement, and groups like Young Life and Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Campus Crusade, all those were beginning to grow and flourish. 
and I encountered a lot of Christians who uh, talked about their faith in a way in which I was not experiencing it. I felt like I was a, I, I was a Christian. I think our good Lord was at work at me in some way, and I do think we come to the Lord in all kinds of ways, but I'm, I'm kind of type A, so I felt like the Lord knew I needed more than just kind of a slow journey in. And so late in my teens, I was actually having a conversation with a, a campus minister who happened to be Baptist at the time. His last name was Carpenter, which I thought was providential. And uh, and he just, we were, I was asking lots of questions about scripture one day. And uh, I said, you know, one after another, and he said, you know, Russ, we can do that all, all day. The real question is, have you invited Christ into your life as your Lord and Savior? And I said, well, I'm baptized, I'm confirmed. I'm, and I, he said, well, the, you know, I think that's a question you need to think about. Uh, if you want that personal relationship that you're talking about, that you see in the lives of others, that begins with an invitation. And uh, so I went home that day um, as a young teen, or, or late, later in my teen years, and uh, in the late 70s. And uh, got down on my knees one night, closed the door, nobody was there, prayed and gave my life to the Lord in a way in which I thought, um, you know, theologically, I didn't have the linguistics for it all, but I knew what I was doing. I can't even tell you what I prayed. And at the time, I think I expected an angel or light or music or whatever. <laughs> and, I, and I often tell this story, even uh, again and again, it's something I tell now. I said, I, and I, did, I felt nothing. Got up, went to bed, and I got up the next morning, and what I've said is from that day forward, I've never not known the presence of Jesus Christ in my life. Now, there have been days when he was felt very far away, days when he felt as close as the person in the pew next to me. Uh, but I've, since that day, I've never not known the presence. And that, that really was the beginning of my um, Christian life. Uh, now, at that point, I was not, did not intend to go into ministry. I grew up in a retail family. We had a big business here in Birmingham. But the more I got involved in the church, the more I was drawn to the work and the ministry. And um, fortunately, married a woman who was very supportive of, of exploring that journey. I didn't go right into ministry right out of college, but began that exploration. And uh, about five years after um, other jobs in education and in, and in ministry for two with John Claypool, who's known to the, uh, the Divinity School here, of course, um, entered seminary and began the journey of ministry. Of course, Russ, everybody knows you as the rector of St. Martin's, but you pastored other churches as yeah, well. Yeah. You just started talking a little bit about your, your sense of calling into pastoral ministry. Just for the sake of listeners, maybe who are from our region or Episcopalians, can you give us a couple of minutes on how you knew God wanted you to be a pastor and what other churches you've served, maybe in uh, the, the southern states as well? Sure. Yeah, I, I think one of the things I did uh, Doug was begin. Once I felt like th this was a call upon my life, I really, as do many in clergy, I, s I started to ask the Lord to uh, close doors. If the, you know, I, I felt like doors were opening, but I said, "Close the doors. I'm not supposed to go. Don't lead me down. Don't let me walk into a place where I'm not supposed to be, and open the doors where I should be." And um, they were they were rarely the doors I thought I'd be walking through. So I. Started as a chaplain at the University of South Swanee, Tennessee. I thought I was going to be there for several years. Then John Claypool called me back to Birmingham. Never thought I'd be able to work with John again. I'd worked with him before seminary. He called me back. And then, actually, I just finished my D-Men here when I said to my wife, I said, you know, we've been at this church for, at that time, four years, I think, or so. 
And, you know, I'm not ready to go yet, but maybe at some point we'll kind of what listen to the Lord. Within about two weeks after saying that out loud, I think our Lord heard me. And we had five letters from different places all over the country, unsolicited. Uh, and and we, um, we were just like, we're not ready to do it. But it became clear. And, uh, and our, my very first call as an assistant to a rector, which is a senior pastor, um, was to Lafayette, Louisiana. It was a small, much smaller church than St. Martin's. And I think there was, uh, we had myself, uh, part-time organist, part-time secretary, part-time housekeeper. That was me. That was the church. And, uh, but it was a great experience, learning experience. But I, my wife was, Laura, was very much part of that process as were our children. You know, we had just finished the D-Men. Uh, we had three children. We left a place that was very comfortable to us into a place that was very different than Birmingham. Lafayette, Louisiana is very different, beating heart of Cajun country. And, um, uh, and, and it ended up being five remarkable years. And then we were called to Pensacola, Florida. And I really thought I was going there to retire. Pensacola is a great place to live. You're not far from the beach. And we had great ministry possibilities there, a larger staff, larger responsibilities. But my predecessor had been there 30 some odd years. So I thought, well, this is, this is where we'll be. And then five years in, we heard from St. Martin's. And, um, and long story short, again, we ended up at St. Martin's. You've mentioned your D-men a couple of times. Can you tell us about your experience at Beeson and what was the topic of your D-men project? Sure. So um, I, I often tell people this because I, I had a great MDiv experience, Master of Divinity experience at Virginia Theological Seminary in the late 80s, early 90s. Was was actually quite proud of its evangelical identity at the time. At the time, John Stott was a preacher there. You know, um, I think the seminary, while I'm still uh, uh, part of that family and I still am supportive of the seminary, it's, it's different than when I was there. Uh, but I studied hard, as anybody does for their MDiv. When I came here, I was a little overwhelmed by the assignment at first. And I remember one of the first classes I had was actually with Fisher Humphreys. And it was on it was systematic theology, and um, and we we were assigned uh, two thousand pages of reading before the first day of class, and I remember thinking I don't think I ever had that <laughs> challenge in all my years of of being in my master's program, and it was so it was, it was uh, ten books each about two hundred pages, and he wanted all of them read and wanted a book report on each one, day one. And I got it done. And uh, and that, I think, quite frankly, the way in which I engaged with Dr. Humphreys, what became a wonderful, warm relationship, which remains to today. He and I were in conversation last week. And, uh, and he ended up being my doctoral advisor. And I ended up doing a, a project called Spiritual Formation in the Local Parish, um, where I created a study group and I looked at essential elements of Christian theology and then Christian discipline. And I had, a, uh, I guess, a, a study group of about 40 or 50 people who agreed to be part of the project over a period of 12 weeks after we had done all the academic work and, um, and learned how to kind of foster that small group ministry in the, in the church. And to some degree, I've used it um, in different places where I've been. All right, we want our listeners to know all about your book. Yeah, thank you. That's one too. of the reasons yeah, we got you in town and we want to interview you. We're very proud that one of our alums has um, not only 
played such a significant pastoral ministry role in the lives of a president and first lady of the United States. But you've got a great new book talking about their faith and the way they live their faith out, witness to dignity. Um, can you tell us, start out by telling us, so how, how does a book like this come to be? Surely you've got to get people's permissions to do this kind of thing. Did the other members of the Bush family play a role? Tell us about the inception of the book. Sure. I, I did not, um, I did not know how our, our relationship with the Bushes, with President and Barr, and that was her request that we call her Barr or Barbara, but not Mrs. Bush. I always called the President Mr. President, but um, didn't know how close we would be. I didn't know how active they would be in the church. And at first, they, were, they seemed to be very active. And, and I, every now and then I would relay a story. Going out, we went out to dinner with them. We would go to their home. We would go um, to, to an event in Houston with them, go to a baseball game. And they brought their pastor and his wife along. And, um, and people said, well, are you writing these stories down? I said, well, no, because I don't know. You know, why, other than these are great memories. Um, but as time marched on, I began to witness not just our friendship grow, but to see their faith and how much their faith, their Christian faith, their commitment to our Lord meant to them and how much it, it played a role in their life. Barbara used to say when, when all the crowds are gone and the dust is settled, the only thing that remains are family, friends, and faith. And I think, you know, the, we were able to be with them in those last 11 and a half years when all the crowds did go, when their health began to go, when their ability to get out began to go. But they kindly, and I said with great humility, invited my wife Laura in to be those moments such that we saw at the end, yeah, the only thing that mattered were those essential relationships and of course that one with our Lord. And so I, I as I read, and I've read lots of things about the Bushes as, as many people have, but didn't really read anything about their faith. And so probably a year or two after their death, I began to fiddle with the idea a little bit, but they were very self-effacing. They didn't like, you know, they didn't like the spotlight. And so the thing I struggled with the most was how do you write this story from the perspective of their pastor without using personal pronouns? It's like, and I, and I say that early on in the book, I finally say, if you're reading this book, I'm not trying to say me, my, and I, for any particular reason to impress, you know, to say, boy, I got to do these neat things because I was the pastor's president, the president's pastor. But but I did get to do neat things because of that. And so I finally put that to the grown children, all of them. And I said, this is what I'm thinking about doing. My biggest challenge is how do I do this without, you know, keeping the spotlight where I want it, which is your parents and their faith. And they all were very supportive. They said, we want to see what you write when, you, when it's done. Uh, but at the, uh, and, and then Jeb Bush, who wrote the foreword for the book, Finally, he's the one who said, well, of course you have to tell it from your perspective. That's the only way you can tell it. And so that's kind of how I got the title, Witness to Dignity. And I, and I say in the beginning of the book, that what I, after I got myself, this is me, but I say, what I'm going to do now for the rest of the books, I'm standing in the witness box, and I'm going to give you a testimony about what I was able to witness over these years. And so, I, again, I, I'm one who tends to sit down and write in one batch. When I did my doctoral program here at Beeson, uh, I, I moved out of the house with my wife and three children, as much as I love them, and I moved into my parents' house where I, I could have a house, and I and I wrote my dissertation in four weeks. So you know, and then I wrote this book in about four weeks, two days, and I just sat down and 
plugged it out. And, um, and then I sent it to all the living children for, for their review. And I had one, one correction, and everybody else was very happy with it. And, um, and then the editor went to town. It was way too long, 500 and some odd pages, and that's about 320, I think. But um, it was a great process and really enabled me to relive moments where, again, it spoke to me about their There were some moments where I would finish a chapter or a story where I would be in tears because I, I, I do miss them. They became friends and, uh, and, and really wonderful, generous people. And so it, it's a living testimony and it was a work of love and admir admiration. You uh, mentioned that Barbara wanted you to call her Bar mm -hmm. or Barbara and they didn't like the spotlight. And I hope it's okay, Doug, for me to share, um, you've heard it, but one of my special childhood memories was um, uh, we had to write a letter to someone famous, and uh, this is the time when George H.W. Bush was president, and I decided to write the First Lady, and I was the only child in my class that received a letter back wow. from the person that they wrote, and I received a letter back from uh, Barbara Bush. Uh, it was all typed out on letterhead, but it had her signature with a little P.S. note written, and um, we framed it, and it was really near and dear to me. And so hearing you talk about her and both of them really, and what I've read in your book, I just have taken away that you had a very loving relationship. I think I remember reading that they would say, I love you, and you would say, I love you. So can you, um, and I want our readers to read the book and get the full story, but can you give us just a little window into how that relationship really um, blossomed and become one of such great fondness and love? Yeah, I, I think I was surprised uh, to, uh, again, but, but they, one of them got ill right after we got there. Oh, it, this wasn't one of their serious bouts, but they were in the hospital. Well, I went to the hospital like you do. And I think that almost immediately they saw that I was gonna be their pastor. And, uh, and then they, they did invite us to dinner early on. And again, as um, I say in the book, there were several times I went, why am I, why am I here? But the, the more their health, I mean, like early in the relationship, if we were invited to the house, it used to be an aide or somebody at Secret Service, somebody would call and it got closer, it would be Barbara would call. So you, you all want to come over for lunch or do you want to, we're going to a play, do you want to go to, you know. And I think they just got to know us and we got to know them. But they were very openly affectionate with each other. One of the things the president like, would say is love you more. You'd say, you'd say I love you, he'd say I love you more. And it was, one of the, it was the last thing he said to me in the last conversation we had. and. Um, and they, again, were very affectionate, very authentic. And I think the, the experience you had was the experience many people have. I, everybody I know who, who have had the opportunity to meet the president or Barbara, I'll often say, you, you didn't just meet, you have a story. You, everybody, you, there's a story that goes with it. Because he was a, prof they both of them, prof you know, letter writer. In fact, that, I should say, that was one of the reasons I wrote the book too. Because we were we were just finishing up a large building project at at, at the at St. Martin's, and I came across reams of letters, personal letters, emails, things like that. that I thought, well, do we just throw these away, and or do I put them? Yeah, and so that was part of what came. But we have so many letters. Some are fun letters, you know, and I think their humor. I have I hope I think I have a pretty good sense of humor. They have a pretty good sense of humor, and uh, one of the stories that you might have read in the book is. 
were over at the president's house one day. Barbara and, and the president had these two dogs, Minnie and Bibi. Bibi was a little multi-poo and was very protective of Barbara and the president. And, and Bibi bit everybody and bit, bit Secret Service, bit visitors, bit me one time. But the first bite for us was one day we were leaving. My wife and I had gone to the house. We brought communion, wasn't feeling well, so we had a visit over the house and prayed together. And my wife leaned over to kiss, which was common. We give him a kiss on the cheek and say goodbye, have a good day. So she leans over to kiss the president, goodbye. And BB reaches out and bites my wife on the leg. And Barbara's, oh, I'm so I'm horrified. I can't believe that happened. I said, well, I've got to see your leg. And my wife had a pantsuit on, and she said, no, I'm fine. So, but Barbara pressed it until we got out the door, pulled up her leg, blood was going down the side of her leg. And Barbara said, oh, I just feel so bad about it. Well, the next day, it wasn't a wound wound, but it was a wound. But the next day, well, my wife is coming back from a walk and she sees a car, somebody walking away from our front door and getting in a car and driving away. And she goes up to the door and there's a huge orchid with a personal note in Barbara's handwriting. It says, dear, dear Laura, my wife's name, dear Laura, I'm so sorry about the bite. You just look good enough to eat. Love, BB, and, uh, <laughs> and we, we kept that note. And I was, that's another thing that people in Houston, what we got to see, uh, Yes, they had Secret Service care. It was, you know, but you would see Barbara at Walgreens. You'd see them at the baseball, and they're stopping and talking to people. It was, it was. They were very open, warm, and generous. But that love takes on a special quality when you're praying with people. If you, if you think there were a few times we thought they were near death early on, and uh, and you go through that with somebody who's a pastor, and that love becomes authentic. Not many of us listening to this recording right now have um, had the privilege of an up-close and personal relationship with the Bushes. We all know they professed faith in Christ, but you got to see it in a way that our listeners, at least most of them, haven't gotten to see it. Can you tell us a few stories that give us a better feel for what was their Christian commitment like? What was their Christian faith, just sort of their everyday walk with God like? I think this is important to say. I, I, we all have watched politicians and people in the public eye who grab onto faith and use it to further their own ambitions. Um, and from what I know, experience, what I've read and what I've witnessed, again, they never did that. I don't, I, I, we kind of, when I say they didn't wear their faith on their sleeve, that I don't mean they weren't um, demonstrative in it. I mean, they, they were unapologetic about who they were. And, um, but they, you never saw them kind of use it for any reason other than to be faithful to it, I think they were often used by their faith to make a difference. So I do believe that when, uh, you know, in a, in a story that I, I wasn't present for, though I had, for, I was in D.C. from 89 to 92, so I was in there during those crucial years doing my graduate work, so I could witness from afar, and I had friends who worked in the Bush White House who said whenever he had an important decision to make, he would call all members of the staff, not at a particular whether you open letters or you were secretary, or, to come together and pray, to help me, I've got to make a big decision. Either they do that in the White House, or they do it, they go across the street to St. John's Lafayette. Um, and then when he, uh, you know, he made the decision to go into Iraq to uh, 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 push Iraq out of Kuwait, he studied Augustine's just war theory. I mean, that was not just a political decision, a military decision. It was a, it was something that he thought through and prayed through and, and then made that decision. Um, but on a personal level, what we began to see is how much they did seem to appreciate 
their church. They were in church every week. If they were not ill or traveling, they were in church, even up to the end. And I think one of the things, one of the lessons I learned by watching them is as, as their health issues began to grow, it didn't keep them from coming and sitting in the pew and staying till the end. They weren't, they didn't get up and leave. They, and the president, for instance, went from walking upright to walking with a cane, to walking with a walker, to being in a wheelchair. And, uh, but he came as long as he could. And when he couldn't come, then they would, would want Russ, my, or Russ and my wife to come to the house and pray and be with them. When, you know, long seasons of, of sitting with them in the hospital and long seasons of prayer. But I, it, it was just part of who they were. And I, a great example of that is one day I was over visiting with Barbara and she said, uh, we were in the most, she, she was baptized, but she was never confirmed. What we call kind of that adult decision as, a, as an Episcopalian, when you affirm your faith. And she looked at me one day, and we were talking about something. She goes, you know I believe, right? And I said, absolutely, of course I know you believe, Barbara. She goes, well, maybe, maybe I need to be confirmed. And I, I was like, we, you know, if you believe, you don't, that's, that's a sacramental act. You don't have to do that. But if that's something you want to do, so do you think I have to take a class? I was like, you know, and we went through all this and, but she wanted to make that affirmation in her late eighties at the time. And so we did that in a private service, which was very meaningful. And then one day after the president had had a real bad bout, it was 2012, and really thought we thought we were going to lose him, but he came back 2012 and he and I were alone at the house talking about a number of things. And then he brought up heaven and he said, what do you think heaven's like? And I, I talked about this in the book I, I, and I said, <clears throat> and I, we talked a little bit about heaven and I said, I think there's a lot we don't know, but we Christians believe there is a heaven. And of course he said, well, yes, I, but, but I just wonder what it was like. And he said, do you think I'll meet his, his deceased daughter? He said, do you think I'll, I'll see Robin there? And I said, I think the scriptures in our faith testified to the fact that, yes, you will see your, your daughter there. And um, he said, well, how old do you think she'll be? And I said, well, Mr. President, that I don't know. I said, that's, that's one I don't know the answer to. But what struck me there, Doug, was that he, he never said, is there a heaven? Or you think I'm going to make it? Or, you know, and, and particularly in the end, lots of conversations about heaven. And the last day of his life, um, I, I was with both he and the barber when they passed away, but, um, but he, his good friend, Jim Baker, who's an active member of St. Martin's as well, Jim Baker came in to see the president that morning he said, and the president said, uh, uh, good morning, bake. He called him bake and, uh, secretary Baker would call him Hefe. He said, good morning, Hefe. And the president said, uh, well, where are we going today, bake? And Jim Baker said, Mr. President, we're going to heaven today. And, uh, the president said, well, good, because that's where I want to go. And um, just it was it, it wasn't something that it seemed to come naturally to them. And I think it's because they were steeped in it and they worshiped regularly, prayed regularly, read the scriptures and believed. You officiated both of their funerals. Um, and as Doug mentioned in the intro, it, you knew that these funerals would be very well attended, um, watched by millions. What was that experience like to plan uh, the services for a first lady and president. Um, how did you uh, prepare before the Lord your heart and a sermon, you know, sermons for both of them, especially hearing about your friendship and your love for them? I know that you were probably deeply affected by their deaths as well. So I wonder if you can share a little bit about that experience. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it was a huge uh, responsibility. It started almost the day I got to St. Martin's because a state funeral involves so many moving pieces. The state funeral was the one in D.C. Um, but I didn't know how much even I would be involved in that. What was that? But shortly after, it became very clear they wanted simple Episcopal funerals, although with the exception of who came and who sang <laughs> and who was, you know, but the, the, the liturgy was traditional. Uh, and it came right from our prayer book, and that's what they wanted. And uh, and um, so we began to slowly choose the music together, the scriptures together. That, you know, I would recommend. And there was never really any kind of back and forth. They pretty much trusted me. I did. Uh, I did one Amazing Grace at Barbara's funeral. I felt like that was a great. And and she kind of pushed back. She, oh, everybody sings that. And I said, but you know, Barbara, everybody will know that, and everybody will sing that. And. Um, but we realized that, as I think funerals are, it was really a, a, an authentically evangelical opportunity. And I was never going to step away from the responsibility to proclaim our faith. And I learned early on from John Claypool um, that, and I do believe this personally, after 30 years of ministry, people in the pews have good antenna. And if you're not authentic, they know. And John gave me permission at my very early in my ministry, because I was working as John, who was known as a tremendous preacher, a great preacher. We were going in one morning for the first sermon. I was his assistant, my first sermon. And he said, uh, you know, just be yourself. And he said, um, you give them what you've prepared. And I knew what he was telling me. You don't have to compete with me. And he said, like any gift, it's you, you've gone picked it out. Some people like your gift. Some people don't like your gift. Some people open it and be wowed by it. Just and and that really set things for me in place. So that I knew my goal was. I'm a real believer in First Corinthians two two. You know to uh, <clears throat> to really proclaim Christ. And I knew this. These these funerals were opportunities to do that in a generous way. Their their faith was very generous. They have friends of all denominations, but they were also unapologetic about their Christian belief. And so I, I, I never really let them, these people in the pews are people like you and me, despite they had different roles. Um, I didn't think about the cameras. I didn't think about how many were watching or whatever. And I had two or three people really praying for me. Um, and um, and I, before I climbed in the pulpit in D.C., um, I actually, I think there was music being played or something. And I went behind the pulpit and just knelt. And just pray that the Lord would empty me of myself and fill me with him and uh, let me do what I'm supposed to do. And uh, Michael Curry, who's our presiding bishop uh, in the Episcopal Church, grabbed me right before we went in the service and he, he said, I need to pray for you. And I appreciated that. He laid hands on me and he said, and he said, I'm in, now go preach the gospel. And I had a lot of people saying that. And But the the president and Barbara made that easy because they lived it. All I had to do was tell the story that we believed. Dr. Levinson, thank you for giving us this time today, sharing Absolutely. these wonderful stories from your own pastoral ministry with us. Kristen and I always end our interviews with guests by asking them what they're learning from God these days. Uh, so we want to ask that of you as well, just as a way of edifying our listeners with a concluding word. What's the Lord? doing in your life these days? What's he teaching you these days? Um, I, wow, it, it is a great question. I think I, I recently wrote a piece for our parish n newsletter 
about New Year's resolutions, and uh, I just turned 61. And I, I said, one of the things I'm finding is the older I get, the more I need to pray. I'm finding a deeper hunger and a deeper need to pray all the more. I think that is one thing I'm learning. I think um, I, like many of us, are a little heartsick by what's going on in our world. I mean, I guess, I guess Christians across the ages have always had reasons to do that. Um, I keep a, a little piece of paper. I actually have it right with me today. That came from St. Luke's, Birmingham, so 30 years ago. I have carried it with me this long. And it was a, a kid in the pew who wrote on one of the name tags, I love Jesus and God so much. And, um, and I thought, you know, that, that's the goal of what we do. People desire to have that kind of relationship with our Lord. And um, I think they really do desire it. And I think that is the only healing balm we can offer. And so I am I'm of a denomination, but I'm an, a denominationalist. <laughs> I'm a Christian who happens to be in the Episcopal house, but I think the deep, deep hunger of the world is still what it has always been, which is to know Christ in a personal way and have a family in which we can grow in that faith. So, you know, I I really think the essential thing that I continue to believe is more important than anything else that we do in this work, that your graduates do, is not proclaim a denomination, not proclaim ecclesiastical structure, uh, it is to proclaim Christ and invite people into a relationship with Him. Amen. And we want that for our listeners as well. Listeners, thank you very much for tuning in. Remember, we love you. We're praying for you. You have been listening to the Reverend Dr. Russ Levinson. He is the rector of St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston, Texas. And we are proud to say an alumnus of Beeson Divinity School. Thank you for joining us. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes. Thank you.